families. The next opportunity that we'll have to celebrate child dedications will be at Mother's Day. And so if you're interested in participating, uh, just heads up and be prepared to join us at that time. Uh, at this point, I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans. <clears throat> to the book of Romans, we're in chapter 3. In a moment, I'm going to read verses 21 down through 26. Verses 21 through 26, if this is your first time here, my name is Colby, I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church and we're delighted that you've taken time, uh, you've come in the middle of a series uh, that we are uh, going through called Gospel Clarity, where we're studying through the book of Romans to be able to get to the heart of what the gospel is and really learn to, to, to grasp it with a sense of clarity and confidence not just as our confession, profession, and belief, but as the transforming power of God for our salvation. So verse 21 of chapter 3 begins this way. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, as we dedicate our attention to these words, we pray that You would help us rejoice in the clarity of the Gospel. Lord, that You might open to us a sense of wonder as we dig into its depths, as we look at it from different angles and see its beauty and brightness. Lord, I pray that you would allow us not only to understand with our minds, but Lord, to comprehend and rejoice with our hearts and what it shows us about your abundant love for us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 20, there's a story that Jesus tells about workers and some wages. Um, what basically happens is, uh, you know, it's an agrarian society and the, there's a man who owns a field and he has a significant portion of land and he's planted it and the harvest time has come. And, in, you know, often as harvest is, uh, it can happen in a very short amount of time in which the crops are ripe and need to be brought in before the time frame passes. And so he goes out and he, uh, he finds some day laborers and some people to come and work and he needs to encourage them to come into his field. And so he does and, um, and he offers them uh, a day's wage and a fair wage and they go and they begin working. And as the day carries on, we see that he goes out into the marketplace and he finds more. 
And we get the sense as Jesus is telling the story that the day keeps carrying on and the, the one who owns the field is motivated to keep going out and just he says, hey, you know, it's half, we're halfway through the day, bring him in, come, get, come work, work hard and I'll pay you what is fair. And even at the 11th hour, it says, he asks more to come to finish the task, to finish the job that is happening. And at the end of the day, he gets everybody together and he pays to the first to, to the ones who came last the, the wage that he had promised for the entire day for the people who had come first. They get a full day's wage, a denarii. And he pays them. And, the, you know, of course, the ones who were there first, who think, man, I worked about eight to ten more hours. I can't wait to what I see. They become shocked when they get the same thing. <laughs> but he pays them all what he's promised. And they go away and they have... Uh, and the, the workers who started at the beginning, they have one question. They say, how can that be just? How can it be fair that we work that much longer and paid these the same? How can, it be how can it be fair that we cared for this task as long as we did? And they got the same thing in the end. And really, it's a story, Jesus says, about His grace. It's a story that, that God freely gives the hope of salvation to the one who shows up early and the one who shows up late because the basis isn't in their performance, but in God's provision. And that story is kind of at the heart of why Paul uh, is, is what Paul is dealing with here in Romans in this section. And if you've been with us previously, you realize that the Jewish people who had long been stewards of God's word, they have a complaint that says something like, you know, we have, we have kept these portions of the law, or we have tended to our lives in these ways, and we've done these things. Why is it that these Gentiles who have ignored it for ages all of a sudden are being welcomed into your house? That's not right. And so, what is going on here is Paul begins verse 21 by saying, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And Paul, in these verses, wants to show us the righteousness of God in two sort of ways. The rightness of God's approach to only saving both Jew and Gentile by grace. And the righteousness that he grants us as a gift, even though we don't deserve it. It's like a double entendre. He's using righteousness of God to say two things. God is right to do it this way, and your only hope is a gift of righteousness that comes from God. You see, in the church at Rome, there was a division. There was a massive division between Jews and Gentiles because they were separated by massive cultural practices. And the whole of this book, actually, is a theological argument that God has given them the basis to be unified as the people of God. And I would say today, even for us, we have the need to look at a basis that will unify the people of God. Christians find themselves divided over all sorts of subjects, like Jews and Gentiles, Christians from various backgrounds find themselves culturally divided in so many of their practices. They find themselves divided by their own moral perceptions 
of which things are more weighty than others? Christians find themselves divided. And in, in here, what we have is an argument initially to the Jewish people that comes to us with force and impact. In the text, really, it is that God is right to recognize no distinction between Jew and Gentile. But furthermore, that we have all the basis for unity in the gospel when we understand the gospel with clarity. That the gospel is the starting place for spiritual unity among the people of God. And that's what we see in this passage. So we're going to look at it in a couple different ways to discover that. But really, God is right to recognize no distinction between Jew and Gentile and between us First of all, because we are united by the same provision of righteousness. Here's his first reason. Number one, he says, because we are united by the same provision of righteousness. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, that this is the most important theological passage in the book of Romans. It is, it is Paul's sort of review of where he's been headed from the beginning and what he's going to show us for the rest of the time. And so he encapsulates it in a summary. And so if we're talking about gospel clarity today, we're just going to look at the clarity of the gospel. And the first thing that we learn is that we are united as the people of God by the same provision of righteousness. So in the text, if you were paying attention, I'm going to help you go back and see it. But if you were paying attention... We read, in a sense, about a different sort of righteousness that Paul contrasts against the righteousness that the Jewish people he's been speaking with are arguing for. They've been arguing for a righteousness that finds its source in keeping the law and in their performance. But now he says, after showing them that they've fallen so short and so have we, he shows them that there's a righteousness apart from that law. There's a way to be righteous apart from the law. Verse 21 shifts on the phrase, but now, as a way of saying that in Christ, something has been made clear about a right standing with God, a right relationship with God. That's the sort of righteousness he's talking about, where we can be received as right before God. There's been a shift with God in that that has been more clearly seen with the coming of Christ. It's what is described as a gift righteousness, theologically. He's going to describe it as a gift offered. We often think of salvation as a gift. Here, what we really see is the description of a gifted righteousness for God's people rather than a righteousness that comes from the law. Now, Martin Luther called this kind of righteousness an alien righteousness, and I thought it would, we would get a lot of interest if I said today's sermon is entitled Alien Righteousness. But we're going to look closely at it in a moment, but theologians, the reason he used the term alien righteousness, it means something from outside. You see, what he's showing us in this passage is that our hope for salvation comes from a righteousness outside of us rather than one that is internal to us. A righteousness given, a gift righteous, an alien righteousness, in the words of Martin Luther, that is not derived from our performance. John Calvin said it this way, I think I've got it up on the screen here. 
Faith is said to justify. That word justify means to declare righteous because it is the instrument by which we receive Christ in whom, look at the words, righteousness is conveyed to us. Think about something that is conveyed is that something that is possessed by someone else that is passed along to us. So here we see that Jesus' righteousness becomes something conveyed to us if we are to be counted as righteous before God. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, it's the righteousness of another instilled from without. Invested in us through the work of the Holy Spirit, is what he's referring to. This is the righteousness, Luther says, of Christ, by which he justifies or declares us righteous through faith. As it is written in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul describes it by saying, whom God, Jesus Christ, God made Jesus to be our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus is in possession of something that we do not possess and through faith it is conveyed to us or as Luther says here, it is instilled from without so it is counted as being ours. This is what is being described in this passage. Well, let me show it to you in the text. Notice the way he describes this righteousness in the text. Paul describes it first as the righteousness of God apart from the law or apart from the keeping of the law. Paul wants to make it clear that there is no right standing with God, and you need to be clear about this, that there is no right standing with God that comes by way of our performance of the law. He has already shown for two chapters or so of reasoning with this, uh, this idea. So if you're coming for the first time, we've spent week upon week upon week showing that there is nothing about what we have that, that merits us before God or commends us to God. And in fact, we are deserving of righteous condemnation of God's wrath, His outpouring of justice against our sin. We concluded last week by saying that the purpose was for that was so that every mouth could be stopped in its arguments with God about why we deserve to be received by Him. That we would lay our hand over our mouth and look for our salvation to come from outside of us, not from within. And so this is what's happening He's shown this for two chapters, but he wants to make it extra clear that although the law in some manner declares and contains the righteousness of God, our sin means that a righteousness from the law is not sufficient or attainable. It would be a hopeless condition except for the fact that God has unveiled a righteousness apart from the law that he is speaking of now through which both Jew and Gentile can be right with God. So first he describes it as a righteousness apart from the law. Look at the second way he describes it. He describes it as the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. Depending on your translation, it may say faith in Jesus Christ or through the faith of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 22. After his aside about it being apart from the law, it says the righteousness that he's talking about, this righteousness of God, he sort of restarts the main clause of the sentence. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, there's a, in, in reading that particular line, there's a necessity for some decision making about what the phrase through faith in Christ is most specifically pointing to. 
On the most, most basic level, what he means when he says a righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, what he means is that this is uh, a righteousness that has its, as its source, Jesus. That is sourced in Jesus rather than sourced in the law. So this righteousness comes from Jesus. That means the source of this righteousness is Jesus himself. But I think this is made clearer when the translation of the text in Greek is made in a more straightforward manner because it says literally, the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now let's just think about that for a second. I, I think, you know, those who, who read this passage, they kind of go back and forth uh, with the question, is it really trying to talk about faith in Christ Jesus, Him at source, or the faith, should it be translated the faith of Christ Jesus? It doesn't sound like that much of a difference. And in one sense, I think the same idea is pointed at, but really what we see in this passage is that Jesus Christ was the, the, the one who has lived the perfect life that we could not live. That he, in all faith and trust in the Father, gave up his life in a way of perfect faith and obedience, as the, the writer of Hebrews describes it. He exercised a faith that we have never purely exercised. He's done what is righteous before God in fullness. He has exercised a faith and he possesses. The faith of Jesus Christ is displayed in his faithful obedience. And sometimes it's translated the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has been faithful on our behalf. This is what Paul really is pointing to when he's talking about a gift righteousness. That Jesus has been faithful. He has been righteous on our behalf. And that righteousness is imputed to us by faith. That's a theological word. That means it's counted as belonging to us. So the gospel works through gifting us a righteousness, an alien righteousness that is conveyed to us because of Jesus' faithfulness and received by our faith. So he calls it the righteousness of God apart from the law, the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. Lastly, he calls it the righteousness of God for all who believe. It's a righteousness. I want you to notice something. It's a, the, way, the words here help us see that it's a righteousness for us. It gives the indication of it being on behalf of us. In place of our own failure is what's happening here. You know, we, had, we went back and we heard about a righteousness from the law, right? Sourced in the law. But here, there's a righteousness for us that belongs to Christ that is, that is credited to all who believe. That through faith, we receive the benefit, the credit, the conveyance, whatever word you want, this alien righteousness counted as belonging to us because faith unifies us to Jesus and God sees us as united to him. And so, when God says to the Jew and the Gentile, you have reason to be united, he says we're united by the same provision of righteousness, therefore we are walking on the same ground. It's a righteousness for us. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from faith in general. It is possessed by Jesus and Jesus alone and made available to us freely on our behalf through Him. 
And apart from this alien righteousness credited to us through the union of faith with Christ, there is no right standing of anyone before God. There's no, there's no righteousness that He approves of that belongs to us on our own. This is the first thing that, that He says. This is true for, for all of us. And, and to kind of get to the, the heart of that in verse 24, then we see the second thing, that we are united by a universal gospel. We are united by a universal gospel. gospel. Verse 24 Really, let's be, I meant to begin in verse 22. Notice how he starts emphasizing what he wants us to see at the end of verse 22. For there is no distinction. Now, if you're the type of person who underlines in your Bible, this is the key idea that's controlling Paul's argument here. He wants us to see that there are not two ways to God. There is one way through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's no distinction or special case for anyone outside of Christ. There's no distinction. There's no special credit that we can earn. There's not a second door, a back door, or anything else. This is a gospel that is universal. It's one gospel for all of us. That's what I mean by universal. There's one message by which we are saved. There's one place where we are redeemed. There's one name above every other name through which we find hope and salvation. And that's the name of Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And we are united by this universal gospel that calls us to an exclusive relationship in Him. Consider then how the gospel unites us in one common hope to God. Paul is making an argument in Romans that the Jewish and Gentile Christians should live united in love for one another because they share in one common salvation, not two different paths. So Paul describes this gospel that unites for us beginning in verse 23. For there is no distinction, verse 22 ends, means that there is but one way that God considers us to be right in right relationship with Him. Listen, I want it to be abundantly clear to us, there isn't a Jewish way. There isn't a Gentile way. Furthermore, there isn't a Baptist way to Christ. There isn't a Catholic way to Christ. There isn't a Muslim way to be saved. There isn't a Methodist way or a Buddhist way. There's just a way provided by God in the person of Jesus Christ. There's only the Jesus way. Now the reason is, is because we have no righteousness on our own. We need a gifted righteousness. We are either provided for by His righteousness or we are under the condemnation of our own sin. That's the distinction that he makes. Paul expresses the gospel, though, with a powerful clarity. And I would say if you've had trouble articulating the ideas of the gospel, one of the best things you could do is memorize verse 23 through the beginning of verse 25 as a way of sharing the gospel with people. But I just want you to see how clear it is and how uniting it is. Go ahead to the next slide. This is a gospel that unites. We find out that, that Paul's ideas of the gospel summarized here looks like this. We see that there's been a universal participation in sin. All have sinned. Every one of us that leaves no exceptions for the case. We see the universal condemnation of sinners. Not only have all sinned, but all have fallen short of the glory of of God. I want to stop for a moment and explain what it means to fall short of the glory of God. 
Well, what we see is that in John 5, 44, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Glory there means the esteem or acclamation or approval that righteousness would merit. That means if you were able to be righteous, God's celebration and affirmation over your life would be merited. But what, what sin means is that we fall short of a life that can be approved by God, of a glory that belongs to us and in our, of ourselves as God's affirmation of the goodness of our lives. Because of sin, there's a universal condemnation of sinners, of falling short. One commentator describes it as, as saying that You know, our sense of delineating between how far ahead in righteousness we may be from another doesn't really help us very much because one of you may be at the bottom of the sea and even if if another climbs to the highest heights of Everest, they still can't reach the stars. They fall short. This is what it means. There's a universal condemnation of sinners in the gospel. We've fallen short of the glory of God. There's a universal offer of grace, though. He says here that we are justified. All who will be justified are justified by His grace as a gift. That's how it comes. That word justified means to be declared righteous. We notice the word grace, maybe you've never understood that word, but it's so important that you understand it as undeserved favor and approval from God. Undeserved merit. So grace is this undeserved favor from God that we receive as a gift. Well, how do we do that? Well, he says it comes from a universal place of liberation through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That all of us in our sin don't only commit sin, but we are tied deeply to patterns of sin that we need to be cut free from. We need to be bought back from the slavery. That's the language of redemption. That we would be repurchased from the slave market of our sin and brought into God's family, His possession through the payment, a universal payment for sin through Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And then we see that there's a universal appropriation by faith. There's only one way in which this righteousness is appropriated by us. It comes through faith. So if you didn't get it as a gift, with its belonging to Jesus Christ through trusting by faith, then you don't have it. <laughs> any, any sense that you have, that you believe that your righteousness merits God's attention, merits an exception, Paul makes clear here with his expression of the clarity of the Gospel. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is is the gospel that has the power to save. It's a gospel of grace. And we're united by this one gospel. It's important that we have clarity about this because many of the questions we have where we say, well, what about this and what about that somehow deny 
one of those ideas. That, th- that we've universally participated in sin. That we've been universally condemned rightly as sinners. That we only get it by grace. Through a redemption that comes from Christ. Through the payment of His blood. On the basis of faith alone. This is the good news. And it's a good news that can unite us. Now the reason that's true is for a third reason that we see that comes up in the end of the text. Not only are we united by the provision of righteousness and united by a universal gospel, we're united by the same performance of justice for our salvation. With provision of righteousness credited to us, we really only see one part of dealing with the problem of our sin. What really happens in this passage is at the end, he, in, in verse uh, 25, it describes Jesus as a particular way. He says that, that God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And then you'll notice that he says this was to show something. You know, when we get to that, this, we've got to kind of ask, what is he referring to? Well, he's referring back to this putting forward of Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins. And he's explaining and unpacking what that means and helping us to come to sort of value what was so important about this propitiation. And if you're like me, you, you might, be, might be sitting there thinking, I don't use the word propitiation every day. I mean, how many of y'all used it in the last week? Can I get a raise of hands? I didn't even get a show of hands and one person in the back. Propitiation is not a word that is in our common language, but it has significant meaning. And we we need to understand it here in this section. So Paul has shown us that we are saved through the provision of righteousness, but he also shows us that we're saved through the performance of justice. This is one of the things I think sometimes we fail to understand, that God doesn't just overlook and forget about sin, that God punishes sin. That God displays His justice over sin and shows His holy righteousness as a way of saving us. God executes judgment on our sin, and the way He does it is through the provision of Jesus Christ. So Paul then, having mentioned that Jesus was set forth as a propitiation by His blood, begins to explain more deeply how God's justice is displayed in the Gospel. Notice at the end how Paul shows that he's trying to answer the question, how can God be both just and the justifier? He ends this way by declaring him that he did all of this so that he might be just and the justifier, so that God may, be, may remain righteous when it comes to his justice, and he might declare us righteous even though we are sinners. That somehow, through this work of the cross, God can declare us righteous even though we're sinners, and he can do it in a way that's just. That is the problem Paul really is trying to show that God has remedied through Jesus Christ. How will God be faithful to His justice and faithful to His heart of love and mercy on our behalf? So this is the basic problem. The answer he provides is what he calls the propitiating sacrifice of Jesus by His blood. So let me just try to frame the basic problem for you this way. Here's the basic problem. 
If God is going to be faithful to his own word and character, he will punish our sin. If God is going to be faithful to his word, to the Jewish people, to the promises of the Old Testament, the Jewish people who walked away from him will experience the curse of the law because of their rejection of God. If God is going to be faithful to his word, the wicked will perish in his ways, as the psalmist describes it. But God also is captured by a genuine and deep love for his people and desire to redeem us from the curse of sin. God will not allow sin and Satan to be victorious and he promises to provide a redemption that will offer abundant pardon for sinners who deserve the justice of his wrath. This is what's happening. Now listen, now Paul is not just theoretically concerned though here about this big picture problem. What he's really doing is he's wanting to remind Jewish people in this passage and Gentiles that are reading this, that the faithfulness of God to keep both of these promises is remedied in one provision of Christ. In what Christ has accomplished at the cross. That the cross is the answer to how God remains faithful to his character of justice and extends mercy to the sinner. It's remedied in one provision of Christ. And to do so, he says a couple of things really clearly in this section. The first one is this. As we look closely at this section, we see that Jesus was God's chosen offering of propitiation. Jesus was God's chosen offering of propitiation. Now we're looking kind of closely here at verse 25 where it says, whom of Jesus, it calls him the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Um, the wording of all this is kind of densely packed together, but let's define a couple things. What is propitiation or a propitiatory sacrifice? Well, Paul is using the symbolism of the Old Testament day of atonement here. If you're familiar with that, what would happen is uh, on the day of atonement, the people of Israel in that sacrifice the, the priest would lay his hand on the head of a spotless lamb and confess the sins of the people. There was a confession of sin. And, and through the symbolic laying on of hands on the head of that lamb, it was a way of, of, of that lamb becoming identified as the one who bears that confession. It's a, it's a wearing or a bearing of that sin. And, and so the priest would confess the sins of the people. And by do, doing so, there was this symbolism represented that the offering of this life was a confession that the sin was worthy of death and required blood to be shed, the forfeiture of a life for justice to be satisfied. But there was a knowledge that the blood of bulls and goats and sheep was not sufficient to cover the sins of 
the people, but was pointing forward to something. Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament pointed to a future in which God's servant, the servant of redemption, the one who God would send to be the genuine Savior would, would, was described in the same way. That servant that would come, the Messiah, our Savior, would bear the sins of His people and would offer Himself as an atoning sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, the priest offered the sacrifice. And here it's clear that God is the one who is taking up the role of both priest and sacrifice, offering himself. So God determines that the justice that we deserve, that he himself as the righteous judge will step into our place as the sacrificial lamb. The coming of Jesus was was God's entrance into the world. The taking on of flesh, identifying us with us more deeply than a lamb ever could. He became the one who could be the representative of his people who could bear their sins, who could have their sins imputed to him and through his righteous sacrifice receive the justice of God on our behalf. Listen, I don't want you to miss what that means. That means that on the cross, for those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, that your punishment, that that Jesus bore it, he wore it to that place, and God's wrath against unrighteousness and wickedness that we've participated was poured out on Jesus in our place. He's taken it. In fact, he describes in the midst of that, that it's finished. That Jesus in his eternal power has gone to the cross and extinguished, he's extinguished the letter of debt against us by receiving God's just punishment for your sin. God has executed a judgment before the end. He's, he, he's chosen in Christ to put him forward as a place where, where the judgment of his people would be fully exercised. He would bear their sins and therefore the, our sins are removed in him and our righteousness is secured in him. And we are fully received as the people of God on the basis of what Christ has accomplished. Now Paul wants us to hear that that's true for the Jewish person who tried to keep the law and it's true for the Gentile person who ignored it their whole life and that there's one provision of righteousness in Jesus Christ. There's one place of judgment and justice in Jesus Christ and in both of that, God has finished doing what he's promised. God has done it. And for this reason, Paul says, God is vindicated to overlook the past sins of his people. Now the way he says it is, he says in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. He's speaking this to the Jewish people because in his forbearance, he had passed over their sin. God hadn't chosen just to pour out his justice in that moment. God doesn't choose at the very moment we sin to pour out his justice with an immediacy. And at times, because of that, we come to God with a sort of shrunk view of his glory. 
We consider that God will always just pass over and He's no one to be concerned with. And in a sense, God's glory is diminished before our eyes when it ought to be raised as we see that He passed over sin so that He could stand in our place in Jesus Christ. And every Jewish person who has hope for their ancestors' faith Every person in the past before Christ who had trusted in the coming promise of that Messiah, it was right for God to pass over their sin and not judge them because He knew that one day Jesus would identify for them at the cross. That's for the Jewish people. But then he looks and he says, and at the present time, God is doing this new thing where through proclaiming this gospel of Jesus Christ, not just Jewish people, but Gentiles from every nation of whom we are representatives also have hope of forgiveness for their sins. And God righteously and justly can forgive us because of what Jesus has accomplished On the cross, God is vindicated in overlooking the past sins of His people. God is vindicated in offering pardon to you at this present time because Jesus provides a righteousness as a gift and justice in the place of your sin. Because of this, God is deserving of the title Just and Justifier. He's the holy, righteous, just Justifier, the one who declares us righteous through faith in Christ. This is the gospel. This is where we find hope. This is, this is our, our only way of being right with God. This is the way in which God has chosen to make us right with Him. Fully on the basis of grace. So because of this, I just practically, as we finish, want to urge us to consider a few things as we close. First of all, We have a responsibility to build unifying love around this universal gospel. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, you know, goes into this, uh, or Ephesians chapter 4 goes in and says there's there's one body and one baptism, one faith, one hope of our calling, you know, all of that. That's about unity. That's about us believing that the gospel is our basis that that can humble us personally to be able to relate to other people who are radically different than us. And that it should be our purpose to find this to be our common ground and unity from which we work through all of our differences. And so this gospel has the the power to do that and you'll find in the rest of the book of Romans that he is going to call them to cross over the cultural barriers that often separate them to build a unifying love built on empathy and understanding and welcome in the same way that Jesus Christ has welcomed us around the table of God. One that can forbear with sin. One that can pass over immaturity. One that can can listen in the midst of differences. We We have a responsibility to build unifying love around this universal gospel. These gospel truths have an incredible power to help us build unity in a world that is really divided. We should hold all of our other thoughts, all of our other beliefs, all of our other positions with considerable less passion than we cling to the gospel when we really understand it. And it should draw us to one another in a way that finds unity and common ground, solidarity of concern for one another's lives, as radically different as they may be. If we think about the global people of God for a moment, 
and raise ourselves up out of our own geocentric view of the world. We are part of a family of God from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. Called to find common ground in a world full of differences and divisions. And if we can't do it in the midst of our own host culture, how much harder would it be for us to care for the people of God globally? But they are our family. Our family isn't just a single perspective family. It's a complicated, beautiful, diverse family of God. But it's one people united under one salvation with a real solid ground and common hope that can really unify us. So we should build unifying love around this gospel. The second thing is, I would encourage you to reassess the source of your righteousness. Reassess the source of your righteousness. By this I mean the way that you determine whether you are right with God. Christians and non-Christians alike have trouble admitting guilt. I find Christians and non-Christians alike have trouble acknowledging sin. Seeing the perspective of others. Usually that's because we're protecting some sense of our merit. Our distinction. I have a distinct, credible view and opinion. One that ought to be more respected than that of others. And that's not to say that all ideas are equal. But here we see that before God, there is nothing of our works that gain approval. Now that sounds discouraging until you, willing, until you realize that he willingly grants his approval as a gift. That, that actually today you may have walked in measuring your approval before God, how close you feel to God, where you're at spiritually by your, by your sense of performance over the past week. And because of the gospel, that's just foolish. Now, should we desire to live faithful lives? Absolutely. Does it produce in us a righteousness that begins to take fruit, bear fruit in our lives? But of course it does. But first and foremost, there is never a moment where you have a better basis for a right relationship with God than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No matter what your performance was this week. There's never a moment where you're not welcome at the throne of grace. There's never a moment where the God of all heaven doesn't welcome you to come treading on the humility of Christ's righteousness and not your own. Instead of it being bad news that our righteousness is like filthy rags, it's good news that we have a gift of righteousness that means you sit here today through faith in Christ. If you have faith, fully loved, fully approved by God, absolutely welcoming and accepted in His sight. And you can't lose it. And so much of what we try to do to maintain our image, to shield ourselves as being seen as failures or broken, or even rebellious and messy and confused, write about this subject and write about that, is a way of just measuring out our own righteousness. And listen, 
We see here that before God, none of this gains approval, and Jesus' gift of righteousness is the only sufficient approval we need, which means in Him, we have before God all of it we could have ever hoped for. And you know what is required for you to experience that? Believing it's true. (laughs) The biggest barrier today in your relationship with God is believing that that wild truth is true before God. Man, I, mean, I bet you could identify right now in your seat the reasons why you think that might not be true for you. Maybe you sit there and you go, yeah, but, if, but he knows this. Yeah, but I'm a repeat offender at this. <laughs> I haven't grown as far as I had hoped to get in this. <laughs> this person has told me that I'm a failure. There is no distinction. <laughs> There's no distinction in terms of our righteousness before God. It is in Christ as a gift. And so today, your relationship with God, if you have trusted in Christ, is secure and stable in the place from which you can walk out into the uncertainty and weakness of your own life and deal with the challenges that you face. Knowing that God is for us, and if He is for us, who can be against us? If Jesus Christ gave up Himself for us all, who can hold anything to our account when His justice has satisfied it? If you've been trusting in anything else, perhaps you've missed this good news all along. And whatever whatever you believe cuts you off from God, it doesn't. He welcomes you home through faith in Jesus Christ as you turn from your sin and trust Him. Lastly, as we head into Thanksgiving week, I think this is reason for us to ponder and rejoice in the gift of God's grace. I think it's really important during times of national holiday and celebration that we don't just run through the festivities, going through the motion. That as we think about a time like Thanksgiving, that we give ourselves even if it's structured time in our life that we give ourselves to the celebration of thanksgiving that is rooted in this gospel. That you would take the time in the coming week to not only rejoice in the peripheral things and blessings that God has given you, but that you would rejoice in a salvation and hope that is so secure in Christ. And you would take time to think about it, to look at it, to rest in it, to savor it in the same way we rejoice in a meal. And so my encouragement would be that we rejoice in the gift of God's grace in the weeks ahead. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this good news. And as we prepare to come to the table, we ask that you would grant us an abundant sense of your promised blessing in the gospel. Lord, I pray for the person who is here today who has never put their faith and trust in Christ. Pray for them right now, Lord, that they would turn their heart and mind to you. They would believe this promise. Believe the good news. Lord, that you'd fill them with your spirit. That you would draw them to yourself. Lord, grant them the faith to believe that they're forgiven in Christ and credited with his righteousness that your favor rests over their life. Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we can have in him. It's in Jesus' name.
Amen.